Well, good morning, everyone. How about that cello player? That's my son-in-law. And uh, he'd be, he better be playing in the band if he knows what's good for him. I'm just kidding, sort of. Um, anyway, uh, I'm glad you guys are here this morning. How, traffic was bad, sorry. Uh, two weekends a year, um, you know, the Park District and, and, uh, and our services run into each other, but um, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you made it in. Hopefully it wasn't too frustrating. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I know Kim already mentioned this, but I'll just, I'll just mention it again. Uh, we're going to have some mature content uh, uh, this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about some things that, uh, you know, parents you might want to think about uh, at your discretion. I know you don't know what I'm going to say, but um, I just want to throw it out there. It's kind of a um, PG-13 kind of deal, but... Um, Anyway, we're in a series right now called Blueprint, right? It's a study of this letter written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 AD. And in the letter, Paul addresses what it means to be a Christian. And then he goes to great lengths uh, to uh, explain as best that he can God's overarching uh, purpose for our lives, both as the church and as individuals. And this morning, I want to look at a portion of the letter where Paul uh, essentially describes how the grace of God, which he's been writing about, how the grace of God experienced through faith in Jesus changes us. It impacts the way we live every day. And uh, originally, I planned to start reading for you uh, chapter 5, verse 1, but then I realized that Paul uses the term therefore in verse 1. Remember our interpretive rule from last week, right? Whenever you see the term therefore used at the beginning of the sentence, it's therefore a reason, right? Uh, it's there to connect what Paul's about to write with what he's already said. So I'm going to back up one verse, and I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 32, and then go forward, okay? He writes this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, uh, in, in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, <clears throat> for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be part, uh, partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Now, once again, as we've seen him, we've seen him do before, Paul crams a lot of theology and then the practical implications of that theology into a relatively small section of his letter. And so once again, what, what, what we want to do uh, in terms of interpretation is try and, try and avoid getting bogged down in all of the details and, and tease out uh, from the text, the, his main flow of, of, of thought, you know, the thrust of what, what Paul's trying to say. And it seems to me that what he's attempting to do here is provide uh, Gentile believers in the city of Ephesus an overview of the Christian life. And I'm suggesting that because, uh, well, Paul begins by affirming their spiritual reality, which is a reality for all Christians, right? He says to those in the church, in Christ, God forgave you. 
Christ loved us. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, i.e., as Christians, we are rescued, we're saved through faith in Jesus. It's because of him, because of his sacrifice for, for our sins, that we are graciously forgiven, and as a result, we are what? Paul says we are dearly loved children. Now remember, this spiritual reality was something that Paul uh, stressed all the way back uh, to the opening sentence of, of the letter. But back in chapter 1, he, he writes how in and through Jesus, we experience adoption to sonship. In other words, he's saying faith in Christ brings us not just into the kingdom as citizens, not just into heaven as recipients of, of, of grace, but personal faith uh, in Jesus brings all of us, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, uh, into the very family of God. We are now sons and daughters. And as such, God is no longer just our creator. He is our father in heaven, which means there is intimacy. We have intimacy with God. We have unlimited access to him. We have an inheritance awaiting us, and we are eternally secure. Uh, we are his dearly loved children, and there's no, there's no changing that. Our father's love will never fail. Therefore, Paul says God is our example to follow. Uh, he's our example. And it's important we, we, we don't miss the order of things here because Paul's very, very intentional. You know, we don't, we don't follow God's example in order to become dearly loved children. I mean, we're not, we're not earning our way into, into the family. We're not trying to win the Father's love. No, no, no. In Christ, we are his children, Right? And it's because he loves us and the way that he loves us that we want to follow his example. We want to. We want to be like him. We want to imitate our father. It's what children do. In fact, that's what the Greek term here literally means. We translate it example, but it literally means to imitate. What exactly has God modeled for us to imitate? Well, Paul lists at least four specific things here at the beginning. He says, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, sacrificial love, therefore. Here's my, here's my Ray K. summary. He's writing to those in the church, and he says, look, instead of exhibiting angry, hateful, vengeful, selfish attitudes and behaviors among one another, we're to treat each other as God, our Father, has treated us, with tenderness and mercy. We forgive others as we've been forgiven. We love unconditionally and sacrificially as God in Christ has loved us. So let's stop with that for a second. Let's think about it. I mean, if you, if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, do these four qualities characterize your life and your relationships at home, at work, school, among your, 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 uh, your neighbors, and especially, especially here among us as we interact together uh, as family, you know, brothers and sisters, dearly loved children. Do those, those things characterize uh, your life? And if not, why not? I mean, if God has shown me kindness and compassion, forgiveness and sacrificial love, who am I to withhold that from you? And who are you to withhold that from me? And who are we to withhold it from one another? We're not to. We're, we're to show those things to each other. Paul, Paul continues to say, look, this is the way we're to live. This is how we're to live. He says, walk in the way of love. And in Paul's day, uh, the Greek term for walk was often used as a metaphor for life. Why? Um, I suppose it's because whenever you're walking, you are going somewhere. You are, right? You're moving in a direction. 
And, uh, and as you're walking towards something, conversely, you're walking away from something. Make sense? That's the imagery that Paul offers here. He's saying, as followers of Jesus, as dearly loved children, our walk, our lives are moving more and more and more toward godliness and away from the opposite, ungodliness. Or put another way, we're becoming more and more imitators of God, not imitators uh, of the sinful, broken world in which we live. Earlier in chapter 4, Paul wrote, he said to the Ephesians, he says, you know, you must no longer live as the other Gentiles, the unbelievers do, in the futility of their thinking and their sinful behaviors. They're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God. And then here in chapter 5, he says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And then he goes, he says, don't even allow obscenities and sexual joking and innuendo to be part of your language, part of your lives. It's, it's out of place. It's inappropriate. And, you know, in order to better understand what or why Paul makes these statements, we need to recognize the nature of... Um, ancient Greco-Roman culture, uh, especially when it, when, it, when it came to sex. In short, it was amoral uh, and, and quite sleazy, frankly. And in a large commercialized city like Ephesus with a population of over 200,000 people, second largest city in the world at, at the de- in the day, uh, business and commerce weren't the only things that occupied people's mind and time. Rampant, unbridled sexual activity was part of everyday pagan life, both secular and, in some cases, religious life. Why? Well, it's because, by and large, there, there, um, there were no official, socially accepted uh, standards in place for sexual behavior. There just weren't. So premarital sex, extramarital sex, adultery, heterosexual liaisons, homosexual liaisons, male-female prostitution, incest. I mean, promiscuous behavior was everywhere. It permeated the culture. See, within first century pagan culture, there was this tendency for people to, um, to think of truth, to think of right and wrong, as nothing more than personal preference. So, you know, do whatever's right for you. Whatever feels good to you. And that's what they did. And Paul's goal was to help these new Gentile believers realize that there there is objective truth in this universe. There is right and there is wrong. And there is a divine standard of moral behavior given to us by our creator for the flourishing, for for the benefit, the joy, and the health of humanity. And that's why Paul says you must no longer live as the other Gentiles do. Because he's saying when it, when it comes to sexuality, God has a good, right, safe, healthier way to live, to love, and to flourish. It's not, that, it's not that sex is bad or wrong in and of itself. It was God's idea, right? And within the context of a committed marital relationship, it's a good, wonderful, enjoyable gift that establishes a physical, emotional, and spiritual bond between a husband and wife. And Paul is going to write about uh, marriage a little later on in his letter. But here he's saying, look, outside of that committed relationship, outside of that context, sexual behavior can be physically, emotionally, and spiritually destructive, which is why God commands us to avoid it. And not only avoid it, Paul says what? He says, among you there must not be even a hint, a clue, an inkling of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, not even in your language. 
The Greek term we translate uh, sexual immorality here was the term porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. Uh, and the term in the ancient world referred to any sexual relationship outside a marital commitment between a man and a woman. That's what the word meant. It was about promiscuous sexuality, promiscuous uh, lifestyle. The second term Paul uses, we translate impurity, literally translated means dirty, filthy. And that was a term the ancient Greeks uh, applied to sexual perversions that were present in Greco-Roman culture, including acts of rape, homosexuality, incest, and bestiality. That's what the word meant. And Paul says to his Ephesians friends, look, you've got to stay away from all that, all that stuff. Because it's not God's intent for you. It, it's, a, it, it's not his original intent. It's sinful. It's, it's, it, it's going to hurt you, and it may hurt others. And as you can imagine, um, for these Gentile believers living in what was a sexually charged, anything goes culture, this was a real challenge. This was, gonna, this was a struggle. In fact, maybe it's not so hard for us to imagine what it was like for first century Christians given the nature of our own 21st century sexually charged relativistic culture where the idea of objective truth, right and wrong, is again viewed as a matter of individual preference. Therefore, anything goes. Whatever's true for you, whatever's good for you, the end result is moral confusion and chaos. Now, I don't, I don't think I have to convince anyone in the room of our society's obsession with sex. As C.S. Lewis once said, sex is rapidly becoming the one thing venerated in a world without veneration. He's right. And sexual immorality and impurity, in the truest scriptural sense, is becoming a way of life in this country. And it's leaving devastating consequences. Uh, according to experts, uh, it's, uh, our, our hypersexualized culture makes, makes it increasingly acceptable to objectify people, objectify people, men and women alike. Uh, it contributes to sexual harassment. It, it's created competitive sexuality and body image issues and distortions. It supports the sex trade and trafficking. It's, it's creating mental health issues in our young people. And uh, it, it, for many, it leads to a debilitating compulsion. I mean, I don't know if you, you realize this or not, but sexual addiction is increasing in America at such a rapid rate Newsweek magazine described it as an epidemic and portrayed it with this attention-grabbing cover photo and quote about the loss of marriages, careers, and finances all linked to the problem. Current scientific studies validate what experts have been saying for years, that sex produces a reward-based response that is so highly addictive for some people, its effect is as potent as drugs, as cocaine, for example. And it's estimated that more than 9 million people in the United States are currently living with this addiction, spanning uh, diverse demographics and age groups, with 40 million people a day logging on to some 4.2 million porn sites. And the lack of concern about this, uh, the, the lack of concern about this amorality of our culture, the lack of concern even among Christians is, is troubling. And it's having devastating effects on individuals, on, on, on relationships, on marriages, families, the church body, not to mention the world at large. And you know, here, here, look, here's the deal. Standing up here talking to you about sexual immorality, sexual addiction, pornography is very uncomfortable for me. 
It really is. I would rather talk to you about the Trinity, biblical inerrancy, Davy and Goliath, the bulls, the bears, the cubs, the socks. I mean, whatever. I would much rather do that. But here's what I've learned over the years. Evil thrives in secret, in darkness, in the shadows. And until we shed light on the problem, the evil, until we start talking just openly, talking about the issue with no shame, but talking about it, uh, the, the, the sin, confessing it, and caring for those who are struggling, man, the destruction's going to continue. And that's why we're talking about it. And that's why we're taking it seriously. In fact, on Thursday nights uh, here, we offer a support group called Life. It's for women whose husbands are addicts. On Monday nights, we offer a program, program called Compass for men struggling with sexual addictions. And, um, you know, I don't know what other programs might be in our future, but I can tell you this. We're committed to bringing this epidemic to light in order, that, in order to facilitate healing, healing and, 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 and recovery and forgiveness and freedom and health and flourishing. We want that to be true in people's lives. In fact, take a look at this. When the high-speed internet came in in the mid-90s, uh, pornography became a uh, place of solace for me. At first, it was a way to feel somewhat accepted, feel not so, so much like a freak, um, but it very quickly got hold of me. And I was leading a dual life, uh, elder in the church, uh, leader of Bible studies, uh, recognized at work. But uh, I was estranged really from my family from an intimacy standpoint, both my wife and my kids, and uh, really was, was getting to the point where I became suicidal. My struggle with pornography started at a very young age. A friend of mine's dad had a bunch of uh, Playboy magazines, and so we stumbled upon them one day. And from there, uh, it started just growing in me. It was something it turned into something I couldn't control, something I didn't understand. Sobriety is something encompassed that we talk about a lot. Um, and I find that sobriety is not something that I can always choose because I have this thing inside of me that's rooted really deep. But I'll tell you, one thing I can always choose every day is recovery. And choosing recovery, even sometimes when it's not fun, when things don't work out the way I always want them to, is a whole lot better than just living in, living in isolation and living in addiction and having no hope. All through my teens, young adults, and even into adulthood, pornography, premarital sex, was just all part of growing up and being a guy. This is not something that I can take care of myself. I need God. I can't do this with just me and God. I need other men to help me. I need that accountability. I need that community. Addiction thrives in isolation, which is one of the hardest parts about this. As addiction takes over, we become more and more isolated, thinking that we're that I'm the only one with this problem and, and there's nothing I can do about it. Recovery thrives in community. With God's help and with the help of my community, I have overcome this addiction.
There is victory over pornography. There is victory over sexual addiction. There is hope. I invite you to experience recovery if this is a problem for you. Thanks. Yeah, I you know I, I so appreciate the courage of those those men and and their commitment to sharing their stories and their lives and helping others uh, with addictions. Um, but make no mistake about it. I mean, uh, sexual immorality, uh, sexual addiction, those are not gender specific issues. You know, Paul Paul's admonition to the church is that among you. There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity was intended for all of us, men and women alike, young and old, married, single, for all of us. In the study guide on, on, on Ephesians, uh, theologian N.T. Wright summarizes it this way. Precisely because sex is a good, joyous, and important gift of God's creation, Precisely because it is the means of tenderness and intimacy between husband and wife, as well as the means of God-given procreation, precisely because it is the occasion for great blessing and emotional fulfillment, because of all these, people on the road to genuinely human existence promised in Christ must avoid all cheap imitations. Casual sex is a parody of the real thing like drinking from a muddy stream instead of fresh, clean water, or like listening to a symphony from a damaged audio file when a world-class orchestra is playing in the theater around the corner. Paul's admonition is for all of us. For all of us. But as he continues uh, on with his letter, check out what he writes next, because it's fascinating uh, and, and somewhat unexpected. He says, along with sexual immorality and impurity, <clears throat> among you there must not be even a hint of greed. Greed. The Greek term that he uses refers to an excessive or insatiable longing for more and more money and wealth. Now, why on earth would Paul include greed in this conversation? Uh, could be that, you know, he's writing the Ephesians. Ephesus was a commercial city. Business was big. Making money was a big deal. Uh, but I think it's more than that. Here, here's, here's my take on it. <clears throat> There are some churches in our, in our country today that say what the Bible teaches about sex and, and immorality is obsolete. It's, it's outdated. It's no longer relevant. But what God says about greed and materialism and injustice is spot on. We need to listen and obey. And then there are others that say what the Bible teaches about sex is absolutely relevant and spot on. We need to listen and obey. And then they paid a little or no attention to what God says about greed, materialism, and injustice. Well, Paul was not going to let either of those things happen. He refuses to elevate one sin over another, which we as Christians like to do. Right? I mean, let's be honest. 
greed is never seen to be on par with sexual immorality. And yet Paul links them both as equally serious immoral issues. And by the way, so did Jesus. Jesus said, out of the human heart flows sexual immorality and greed. In fact, Jesus talked way more about money and greed than he ever did about sexual immorality. Why? Because no one really ever thinks they're greedy. No one really thinks they're greedy. It's one of those sins that we can hide, too. It's one of those sins we like to overlook, downplay, or simply tolerate in ourselves. In fact, some of you may be way more comfortable sitting here talking about sexual immorality than talking about money and greed because the first issue isn't so much an issue for you, but the second is. Greed is an issue. Your inability to be generous is an issue. Well, understand, the positive flip on this is that God calls all of us to sexual purity and radical generosity. That's the positive way to state it. And in case you're wondering, uh, generosity, giving money and resources to help other people is a cure for greed. It's the only cure, really. And there's, look, there's no debating what the Paul's point here is. He's, he's saying that sexual immorality and greed <clears throat> are both sins. They're both destructive. And they, they both can be hidden. Or they, they, and, 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 and they, both, they both need to be avoided. So here's the question. Is there even a hint of these in our lives? In mine? In yours? Even a hint? Here's our warning. Paul writes, he, he says, For of this you can be sure... No immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person is an idolater, in other words, they worship money more than God, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What is he saying? Given, well, given the overall context and his use of the term inheritance here, Paul's essentially saying, look, heirs to the kingdom, God's dearly loved children, his sons and daughters in Christ will not continue to live this way. And greed and immorality, they won't. Why? Because when you experience the kindness, the compassion, the forgiveness, and the sacrificial love of God, it changes a person. It transforms you. It transforms the way you think, the way you see life, the way you view your own existence, the way you view yourself as a human being, the way you view um, relationships, the way you view sex, the way you view money. It changes everything. It changes the way you see and understand the world around you. Suddenly, what God, your loving Father, who knows what is right and good and best for you, suddenly what God, your loving Father, says about all these things becomes more important to you than what the world says. And it's with our world in mind that Paul goes on to write this. He says, let, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Here's my Ray K. translation. Our world, our culture... And many of the people around us may disagree, disregard, or just out and out denounce what God says is right, true, good, healthy, and best for us as human beings. But don't listen to them. Don't listen to the, the empty words. N.T. Wright puts it more eloquently. He says, Paul has a way of cutting to the heart of the issue. Don't be fooled, he says. 
There are a lot of empty words out there, words that is, which sound big and important, which echo and resonate in our culture, but which have nothing inside them, no life, no truth. Don't listen to the empty words. Don't buy into what the world is, has to say, and, and certainly don't be partners in all of this. In other words, don't participate in such immoral behavior, immoral, you know, sexual uh, immorality, greed. Don't be partners in it. Don't participate in those things. Because of such things, he says, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, that's not a very popular statement in our culture today, as you could imagine. People don't really like that statement. Most people don't like the idea of a wrathful God, that, you know, uh, partly because they, don't, they lack an accurate understanding of the term wrath. Because when people, when they hear it, immediately they think of, of someone, this being who is just, in, you know, with, uh, uh, their anger is out of control, they're blowing up, they're popping off in fitful, irrational, indiscriminate rage, they're raging on everybody, all these innocent people. But that's, the ancient Greeks didn't use the word that way. Um, the term, their term, and the one that Paul uses here that we translate wrath, referred to a settled, fair, judicial uh, condemnation of some crime, violation, sin that carried consequences and deserved punishment. But even with that definition, <clears throat> there's a lot of pushback from people. Because people will say, Still, I don't care. I don't like it. I don't like that idea. I don't, I don't like that biblical teaching. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, sure there, are, sure, there are some people in this world who deserve God's wrath, bad, nasty, serial killer, Nazi terrorist, ISIS-type people. They're the worst. They deserve the worst. They, they merit God's wrath, and I hope they get it. I hope they get justice. But most people are relatively good. You know, I'm a good person. Not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm mostly good. Isn't, isn't that what matters? Isn't that enough? And the hard but simple answer to the question is no. It's not enough. Mostly good doesn't make up for being partially bad. Sin and rebellion against God and what he says is right and true and good and healthy and best for us as human beings to whatever degree is condemnable. It's, it deserves judgment. It's fair. It, it's, it's just. And we're all, we're all guilty of some, some sin, some violation. And even if it were possible to, to pay the penalty for our sins through, through our own goodness, how much goodness is needed? Way more than I can muster, I could tell you that. That's why in another letter to the church, Paul explains basically Christianity this way. He says, look, all of us have sinned. We've all, we all fall short of God's perfection, God's holiness, God's glory. And mostly good doesn't make up for being partially bad. Therefore, God's settled condemnation, his wrath, his judgment is fair. It's right. The wages of sin is death. But Paul says, here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, uh, in innocence, Jesus took the punishment. He experienced the wrath we rightly deserve. He died that we might live. Uh, or as Paul puts it here in Ephesians 5, 
Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for sin. And through faith in him, by the grace of Almighty God, we are forgiven. And we become dearly loved children forever and ever. Therefore, be kind, compassionate, loving, forgiving, morally pure, and radically generous. In short, imitate and follow the example of your Father in heaven. May that be true of all of our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, there are some issues in life that it's easy for us to talk about, and we're willing to do it. And then there are other topics that we would rather not broach. Um, and the enemy loves those things that are kept in secret. Because in the secret, in the shadows, in the darkness, evil thrives. And so, Lord, we bring up these issues, sexual addiction, immorality, greed. We bring up these issues not as a form of sensationalism, but because we have to talk about them. We have to recognize the brokenness of these things and, and help those who are struggling. All of us, all of us have struggles. All of us sin. We all violate the things that you say are right and good. And we all need help. We all need recovery from something. I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us those things that are hidden in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives that need to be exposed. Because in the light there's forgiveness. In the light there is recovery. In the light there's grace. In the light there's flourishing. And that's what you want for us. But we can't do it alone. We need, we need you to help us. We need Jesus, who's received the wrath that we deserve, who's paid, paid the penalty for us that we might, we might find life and freedom. Thank you for him this morning. And then for any of us who've never put our hope in him, that we would do that today. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? I want to thank you for joining us this morning, and uh, just a reminder, uh, we have Recovery Mondays um, every week, and if there's something in your life that you need help with, uh, find the recovery group that, that, that fits your needs, because we need to help each other through these things, yeah? So we have, we have Compass on, on uh, Monday nights, along with some other uh, recovery programs, and we have Life on Thursday nights. Um, but, but here's the thing. I want to make sure we're clear on this because Paul, Paul wants us to be clear on it in his letter. Um, the first three chapters of, of the letter, he talks all about grace and Jesus and who we are in Christ and all these things. And it's not until the later chapters that he, he really begins to unpack some of the practical implications. Why is that? You know why? Because you, we don't become Christians by doing those things. This comes first. Grace comes first. And then because of God's grace and our love for him and our understanding of that he wants the best for us, out of love, we respond with this, these life changes. And through the power of his spirit, there's transformation and change. Um, but we don't, we don't practice morality and, and generosity and, and, and all these things in order to earn the Father's love, no. We're loved as children. 
And because of that, we imitate our Father in heaven. That's what it means to be a Christian. I hope you guys, I hope you guys get it. And if not, um, talk to someone you know from Parview or come up following service. Talk to some of our prayer folks who will be up here following uh, when we're done, okay? And uh, thanks for being here. Come back next week, and we'll continue on. And I hope you have a great week. Let me pray for us. And now, Lord, I pray that as the church leaves the building, um, that we would go with a great sense of your love and um, a great sense of peace, knowing that your love for us will never change. It'll never falter or never fade, uh, for we are your dearly loved children. May we, by your power and the work of your spirit, live our lives in such a way, with such, with such compassion and forgiveness and love and mercy, with with purity and generosity um, that our world sees the difference and in us sees Jesus our desires to point people to him and so um, may your hand of grace and strength and power rest on your people today in Jesus name, amen, thanks for being here folks, see you next week